Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today for episode 275, my guest is Pavel Morovec from Brains. They are a Bitcoin mining company and they are also running Slushpool. So we're currently going through this taproot speedy trial signaling period and Slushpool were the first pool to start signaling for taproot and I wanted to talk about the process around that just to give you a, an understanding of what that looks like from the mining pool perspective. We also talk a little bit about some of the software and the firmware that Brains offer as well as looking out into the future. What does Bitcoin soft fork upgrades, what do they, what do they look like in the future with mining pools? But first a message for the sponsors of the show. Greetings Stefan Levera fans. This is Dread here, and I have some big news to share. Swan Bitcoin's new private client services division is open for business. So last August, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor kicked off the trend of companies buying Bitcoin for their balance sheets. A flood of high-profile investors and companies have joined him. Names like Paul Tudor Jones, BlackRock, Square, and Tesla. Swan Private exists to meet the massive international demand from thousands of companies, family offices, and high net worth investors from all around the globe. If you're thinking of buying between 100,000 and 100 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin over the next year, visit swanbitcoin.com private. That's swanbitcoin.com private. Fill out the onboarding form or email the CEO personally. Corey at swanbitcoin.com. That's C-O-R-Y at swanbitcoin.com. Respect fans and one love. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow crypto globally and anonymously. Lend at HodlHodl is a way to earn extra income on your stablecoins by lending them out with an average of 25% APR. Also, if you have Bitcoin and you need some liquidity, Lend at HodlHodl allows you to borrow against your Bitcoin. And the best thing is you still hold one key in the two of three multi-signature controlling your Bitcoin during that loan period and HodlHodl does not unilaterally control your funds. Lend at HodlHodl allows peer-to-peer lending and borrowing directly between users. So you go to the platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Have you been looking at getting involved with mining? Compass Mining is an online marketplace making it easier for everyone to mine Bitcoin. In many cases, our residential power rates will not be competitive, but if you go with Compass, you can buy an ASIC machine and set it up into a facility that has already been vetted and has competitive power rates. So now everyone can tap into those economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. So if you're unsure about how to get started, Compass offer hardware and hosting bundles which eliminate the need for advanced technical knowledge. Check out my episode 259 with Whit Gibbs from the team, and you can visit them at compassmining.io to start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show. Pavel, welcome to the show. Hello. Great to be here again. Yeah, so Pavel, uh, I see you guys have been keeping busy over at Brains and Slushpool. So you were one of the first pools, or I think you were the first pool to signal for Taproot, which is very cool. And we're definitely going to get into some of that. Um, For listeners who don't know much about you, can you just give us a little bit of a background on yourself? You've obviously been around the space for a while, um, but can you just tell us a little bit about some of the things you've been doing? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, The Bitcoin 
his story of mine started in 2013 when me and Jan, uh, my partner in Drains, uh, we jumped in a Bitcoin project, which started, uh, it was started by Marek Patinos, just slash pool. So we basically taken over uh, slash pool development and everything in this year. Yeah, and from that point in time, we spent all our time in Bitcoin space. Uh, we got back to our like historical focus towards uh, firmware development and embedded uh, development, which we did before uh, in the company Brains. But uh, from this 2013, it was all about Bitcoin, even in, in this uh, embedded system space. And obviously, a lot of time, uh, we, we spent with slash pool and, and the server side of uh, mining, but yeah, a, a lot of very interesting stuff uh, happened during the years. Uh, so I guess just to summarize some of that for listeners who are maybe not familiar. So Brains is essentially a, a Bitcoin mining company and they, they really focus on basically a full stack. They provide a full software stack and also have slush pool, which was the first Bitcoin mining pool. Um, so just for listeners, make sure you understand if you're new, there's a difference between a miner and a pool, right? That they're, they're actually different entities, um, but we'll, we'll get into some of that as well. But um, I'd love to also ta- chat about Taproot, what it is and why you're signaling for it and all of that. So, uh, Pavel, from your perspective. Yeah, th- thanks for thanks for correcting me or, or fulfilling the, the empty space. Uh, it's, you, you know, you're living in the, in this environment for so long and uh, you're having the discussions with so many people that it's super easy to just forget about the details or yeah of course you kind of expect that everybody understands how bitcoin mining works you know so sorry for that but yeah that there is a very huge difference uh, between being physical miner somebody who has the machines who needs to uh, think about electricity and all the stuff this is super tough business and and there is a second part of second side of uh, the same coin uh, being a pool or any kind of service provider for the physical miners and we as a company focus more on uh, building tools and services for the physical miners or uh, operators or there is a lot of uh, a lot of names how we can call them but yeah uh, it's a different business we don't have any large mining operations ourselves besides some development uh, mining farm for testing our firmware and stuff like that uh, because we in the middle of Europe uh, don't have uh, probably the best like electricity prices for running the, the operations ourselves but yeah there is a huge space in this industry to specialize on uh, different different aspects of, of mining and we are doing the software side and service side more. Excellent. And so if you're new and you're thinking about Bitcoin mining and getting involved, well, slush pool is one of the pools that you might consider when you want to, if you're setting up a miner, you have to think about, well, what's my electricity cost going to be? What's my CapEx? What's my OpEx? And then you have to think, which pool am I going to point my SHA-256 hashing power at? And slush pool, you know, run by Pavel and Jan and the team, they're one of the pools that you could point them to. Um, So yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about Taproot and signaling for it and what does all this mean, right? So just keep in mind that we've got a lot of new people coming into the space. So Pavel, can you just give maybe just an overview from your perspective, what is uh, Taproot and what sort of benefits do you see uh, from this soft fork upgrade to Bitcoin? Yeah, uh, Taproot is a super exciting thing, uh, but to, to keep it 
easy. Uh, Bitcoin has potential for smart contracts. Not a lot of people think uh, about smart contracts in context of Bitcoin very much because there are other chains more known for this kind of feature, but Bitcoin has scripting. Uh, and yet Bitcoin is more capable uh, in this era than people understand. And Taproot is very clever extension of what uh, Bitcoin currently allows to do with in terms of scripting or doing smart contracts. And it is very, it is very nice trick how to get uh, some data reduction and huge privacy gains uh, from uh, like clever uh, trick uh, made by by some cryptographical primitives used by Bitcoin. So it, it essentially, it is it's just an algorithm, but it, it has a huge consequences for privacy on chain, uh, especially in context of smart contracts, where you as a user of Bitcoin, you can uh, you can arrange pretty complex business or other uh, like contracts. Uh, and not allow other people to look into the stuff, uh, even even though uh, the chain can double check that your contract is fulfilled. So it's may- maybe too too difficult even in this uh, level. But yeah, let let me let me take a crack at that. So absolutely, that's the main one. So maybe for listeners, just to give them a simple example, let's say if you've heard of this idea of multi-signature, and as an example, you might have you know some kind of three or five uh, multi-signature setup, and meaning you need three keys out of the five to sign uh, to uh, spend. But with in the taproot world, people can create special kinds of contracts where maybe Maybe over time it could uh, it could back off or back down to say two signatures required if you know let's say after five years or something and you can they can do all sorts of more advanced kind of contracting and it, it taproot can also give some additional privacy in that as well because you might be able to use it in a way where you're not disclosing the conditions of um, how you're spending but I guess that's kind of getting into the taproot weeds itself um, but I guess yeah, it yeah. will be for one one hour of talking uh, yeah exactly exactly all the details and and what the consequences could be but yeah yeah do check out i guess let me let me put it this way i would say um it makes some uses of multi-signature more private it can improve lightning's privacy and i guess getting this soft fork done then enables other things to come in the future so i guess kind of high level that's probably the way to think about it uh and then for you guys over at Slushpool, uh why did you you know want to signal for taproot it was a no-brainer, no pun intended. Uh, it's just cool, uh, cool feature. There is virtually no uh, downside of uh, having this property of Bitcoin. It's just simple, simply better Bitcoin for everybody. You you don't have to use it, uh, but but still, there is no reason why to prevent uh, anybody else to use it. Um, from software perspective, it's just a new, better version of Bitcoin, which is not harming anybody, basically. So. We even didn't think about it basically at all because it's super cool. And part of the the great thing of being part of uh, Bitcoin uh, industry or this environment was always this great technological stuff. We are uh, in heart nerds. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And yeah, just start to read about Taproot more. Yeah, for sure. It's a fascinating story, like on a technical level. And for users, obviously, there is so many, so many benefits. So yeah, it was super easy. And we wanted to support the, the signaling as soon as possible. And yeah, it was fun because we were able to manage to signal for Taproot the very first block we found after the signaling started. 
did, which from external perspective looks cool, but it's kind of messy. But anyway, it happened. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we we were we were the first the first pool signaling, and it, it had quite nice PR spin, so that it forced other other pools to probably f- uh, signal a li- little bit starter than strictly necessary. Because yeah, the, the first signaling period, yeah, it was obvious that it's not gonna be the signaling period which would uh, force Stockroot to be uh, accepted or uh, activated. But yeah. Uh, started starting early and forcing uh, other other pools to to signal was was kind of fine great so let's just back up a little bit just to explain okay what what is all this signaling stuff right okay so if uh, the listener has established yes this taproot is a soft fork that we are bringing into bitcoin what's all this minor signaling business like is the network voting or is it really more like signaling readiness can you outline a little bit about that upgrade process for the bitcoin network yeah uh, we mentioned that taproot is an extension or newer version of bitcoin and because there is no central point of uh, cooperation or how to say it uh, there needs to be some process how to get the new features into the network in some in some way and what what uh, Bitcoin uses and uh, even for uh, this upgrade it, it's based on miners putting an uh, uh, in information about their willingness or readiness to support this new version of Bitcoin and it is quite quite necessary for uh, miners to do it because uh, to keep the network secure uh, you want miners to double check these rules and enforce these rules when uh, Taproot is activated. So the mechanism is at the beginning when uh, the software is ready, uh, miners put uh, an information set one particular bit in the header of uh, Bitcoin blocks created by the miners saying, hey, I'm ready and willing to run uh, Taproot in in the production. Yeah. So To clarify then, it's like the users can all run uh, the latest version of Bitcoin Core, which supports Taproot. But what we're talking about here is actually having the miners signal their readiness. And as you mentioned, this happens inside a version bit. And so why do we care about all this, right? For the listener who is new, part of the reason why goes to this idea that we want, we're we're trying to see first if the miners will support us in enforcing this new taproot rule set. And if they do, then it helps protect some of those users who are on older node software and maybe they have not upgraded. But as you rightly said, we we want to keep the network together, but there is no top-down king or CEO of Bitcoin. So it's really just a voluntary process of people trying to encourage each other, okay, hey, can you uh, signal this thing? And also there's a period uh, of signaling. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, everybody knows that uh, Bitcoin uh, difficulty is changing regularly. It's roughly every two weeks. This period is often used as a grid for this signaling so that you can measure how many blocks has this bit set during this one period. And then you can start over in in the next uh, retarget period and and next. And it it is very easy for everybody to look at uh, the number of blocks in this period and make a judgment about it. And right now, Taproot is like signaling of Taproot is based on this retarget period measurement as well. 
So whenever there is, there will be 90% of blocks uh, with this bid uh, set in one retarget period, in one difficulty change period, then Taproot would, uh, would be considered activated all miners from some point in time and all users of the rail start to enforce uh this these rules yeah there is very nice uh like battle of ideas or two parties uh, or kind of parties miners and users there's a lot of talks about this in, in history and yeah you, you can enforce the rules from both sides basically but it's always best when uh, miners and users cooperate or in, in this particular case we don't think it is anyhow controversial or not controversial so much that should cause any troubles so i hope all the signaling goes well uh, right now we are on 40 maybe 50 percent of uh blocks already contain the uh the, the bit uh and yeah so listeners you can see on on the website uh, it's a really good website it's taproot.watch and that's got uh uh, actually, I can't recall the name of the individual. Uh, Hampus underscore S has created this website, and he, he's basically just giving you a breakdown how many pools are supporting. But the other important thing to remember is what we were saying before: is that miners and pools are not necessarily the same. Now, it may actually be the case that, given Taproot is a widely supported upgrade across the network, that basically there's been no serious objections to it. Uh, that maybe we'll see some jockeying around in terms of miners, because as an example, if I as a as a miner and pointing my pool, my hash rate or my hash power somewhere else to some pool that's not signaling for Taproot, I might then repoint that. I might change that and say, hey, I want to point it to Slush Pool because Slush Pool guys are uh, signaling for Taproot, right? It will be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. It, it's nice that you're doing sales pitch instead of me. <laughs> I should visit more, more podcasts like this. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I think this is one of those things where it's a community thing as well because to some extent, people um, have to share the message out. And uh, if they really want this upgrade, well, then they've got to try and convince, cajole, try and get the uh, get everyone else on board with this idea. Uh, and just to sort of see if, uh, well, if Taproot is something we want, well, then that's something that people have to try to encourage. So I guess that's one way that people can try to push things. And I guess there is a competitive pressure here because maybe there will be some other pools and maybe they're a bit slower or maybe they, you know, maybe they're, they're dragging their feet a little bit on actually supporting Taproot. So maybe it would be good to talk a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting if if there is maybe one, two pools at the end when everybody else is already signaling what's going to happen then. Uh, because like technically, I think it is net positive for almost everybody. I don't know about any particular user group or anybody basically who would benefit from Taproot not being activated. I don't know about any such group. But yeah, there can be some politics. I don't know. It, it, it can be interesting if there is maybe one large pool not signaling, not communicating. Yeah, we'll see. I hope it's not going to happen. But if it happens, it would be fun to watch what, uh, what the uh, events will be if the hash rate would start moving yeah. between the pools. Because it's not so easy. It's technically very easy to switch switch pool but uh business wise it's not always super easy to switch pools because there are typically some uh, agreements in place especially for uh, bigger bigger players uh, so yeah there can be some political games as we already saw in the history of bitcoin <laughs> yeah of course so i think given that we have this 90 percent threshold 
So, you know, maybe it's possible if, if, if even if we're a little bit under 90%, but just with a bit of luckiness in terms of the variability of when the blocks come in, that we end up over 90% and it's considered activated, but we have to wait for that to happen. And I think it's also probably fair to point out that there are, so I guess dropping back a little bit as well around speedy trial. So there are multiple periods, right? It's not that right. uh, this has to be happening all in the first period and perhaps it might've been an unfair or maybe unreasonable expectation that all the pools would have all their stuff set up uh, in the first signaling period. What are some of the difficulties around that or in your, or do you disagree? You actually think it's not that difficult for the pools to signal for taproot? Yeah, it has a lot of aspects in it obviously you mentioned uh, speedy trial or we we have basically three months so the earlier we start to signal uh the better that's basic stance of of us uh, so we we wanted to signal as as soon as possible to just get the ball rolling technically it is very easy in on, principally because it is only about creating blocks with one particular bit set to uh, one instead of zero infrastructure wise if you're running a pool it can be easy or uh, difficult but it is basically uh, only a software software change uh, and what what we did we we even didn't deploy bitcoin core the newest version of bitcoin core for signaling we just changed our mining software uh, on the pool side which organizes the work which sends the work to uh, to the miners and enforced this bit it was literally two lines of code uh, which we changed uh, for that and there is a second part of the whole uh, deployment and it is being ready for enforce the rules when the proof is activated and then obviously you would want to run the newest version of bitcoin core bitcoin network uh, software and it is slightly more complicated procedure the reason is bitcoin mining pool is very distributed system we, you have to run uh, your software on a lot of uh, different servers in different geographical locations, uh, basically being as close as possible to your customers. So it is not in one data center. It has to be very wide, widely spread. And you have to run uh, even Bitcoin, Bitcoin Core nodes in these locations as well. So we are running tens, tens of Bitcoin networks in production all over the world. And you have to update all this software during the normal operations. There, so there is some procedure needed for switching the backends when you are doing the upgrade and stuff like that. But all the pools uh, with significant hash rate, the, everybody has to be ready for uh, rolling out new features not necessarily only on the Bitcoin side, a Bitcoin network side, but even for internal software as well. So it's not a rocket science. It can be done as a, as a normal like deployment process. So yeah, I, I don't think it's it's a problematic thing at all. It's more willingness to do it than complexity of uh, doing so. I see. Yeah, and perhaps in the case of different pools, because I guess there are, there are different size pools, and I guess for context, slash pool, as I see on the side, has roughly three percent of the network's hash rate, and maybe some of the largest pools might be around fourteen percent, but that's like really the biggest ones. Um, so uh, it is completely I guess, the same um, uh, for everybody. Uh, I think we we are not yeah. significantly smaller infrastructure-wise than the largest uh, pools because the, the hash rate is not the best number for estimating how large the infrastructure needs to be. 
if your hash rate is very concentrated in small number of data centers with a lot of hash rate, your, your, business, your work is much easier. In our case, we do have more spread hash rate all over the place. I, I could... I. I can't imagine we we would have to run more servers than much larger pools. If you if you look only on the percentage of the network, it's not giving the the best information about this. I see. Which I'm I'm completely not complaining. It's very scalable thing. I think new servers, if your infrastructure is well done, uh, it's easy. So I think it's the same for everybody basically. Yeah, and then. Perhaps it's also a question of having the right technically skilled staff and maybe they're not away on holiday or away on leave at the time that you're trying to do this upgrade and <laughs> yeah, of course. things like that. Yeah, but, but you don't want to mine on a pool uh, without skilled people to change one bit in the Bitcoin header, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Yeah, for sure. So um, while we're here as well, just for listeners to get some context, what are some of the ways that the pools will differentiate themselves from each other? Like how do they compete? Like if, if you're a miner and they're listening right now and thinking which pool that they would like to you know, point their hash rate towards, why, why, what, do, what do they choose that based on? Um, it is very value-based. You can, and you can choose your pool based on who, who you trust. You can obviously choose pool based on fees. You can think about what kind of blocks would this pool create. There are some pools who will definitely censor transactions or are doing it already. And you can be okay with it or not. It's one of the big goes or no goes for uh, some people. Uh, there is this transparency thing. Some some companies are uh, mining, for example, with us uh, because we can give them uh, very good support in their auditing process uh, and so on. So there are even reasons for like running firmware or even the pool with a known entity from Western role so that uh, internal uh, processes as audits or getting insurance and stuff like that can be uh, reasons for having a decent partner who you can have uh, agree uh, legal agreements with it can be difficult with some pools and so on and so on. it's really 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 differs based on who you are as a miner if you're a publicly traded company for example your preference would be slightly different and it, it would point more uh, in direction of not screwing your uh, shareholders basically and ensuring that nothing can uh, go sideways if you are a small miner you can be more uh, you can look more about uh, on the censoring thing or trust it really depends uh, obviously economical uh, things like fees uh, or one of the cool or critical features of pool is being 100% time uh, available and working. So you can measure uh, how your latencies are, how the pool really behaves from this perspective. Because if you are, for example, half percent of time down or the servers are not responding properly or and so on, so on it cuts to your... Uh, earned bitcoins profits and so on so yeah yeah a lot of stuff uh, you, you should consider as a miner especially if you are running larger operation yeah yeah so yeah so there's a range of things so i guess it's it's fees it's uptime it's latency to your nodes it is um structure around whether they are planning to sense off um auditability through the stack 
so I suppose let's let's go a little bit further into the auditability aspect. I think that's something I know you uh, at, at, you know you and the team at Brains are big on this idea of trying to own or be self sovereign through the whole stack. And I see you've got you know firmware for the actual. Uh, it's going down to firmware for the hardware to having pool far, mining farm management. Can you tell us a little bit about the offerings there from Brains? Yeah, as I mentioned, we, we are focusing more on the software stack and services around the mining. So we, our software ranges from, let's let's take it from the hardware, physical side of things. Uh, we do provide firmware for uh, the miners, for the physical machines doing the dirty work of hashing the blocks. Boiling the oceans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The bad boys. Uh, so we, we do provide uh, firmware for these machines uh, with intention to uh, give people soft software taking the all the power the machines can provide. You can do pretty complex optimization tricks on the level of hardware, like extract all the all the power you can. Uh, so it's 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 this thing. Then we historically have a pool. So the, the machines are connecting to, to a pool which organize the, the whole mining and you're being paid for delivering the hash rate. There is a in-between software as a local proxy or some management proxy in the farm. We are not currently publicly offering this yet, but we are getting into space as well. And it, it, it is related to a local farm management uh, so that there is this this area we we do work uh, on on the pool side. Yeah, the, the offerings are basically very similar to what uh, other pools are doing. Uh, we are working on a solution which would allow you to sell your hash rate pretty freely. So extending the the, the stack even further towards trading of uh, the power. Uh, there is the whole aspect of managing the farm from external point of view. So we can go and manage your machines through internet, uh, which is what you mentioned as uh, brain source manager. Yeah, there is a lot of PCs. It's it's quite difficult to wrap your head around if you're not familiar with the physical stack. If you're not a miner, there is a lot of moving parts. The, the whole software stack takes like four different layers. So it's, it's so fascinating. Back to the show in a moment. Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. So if you have been stacking your sats and you're thinking about improving your security and moving up to multi-signature, Unchained can help you out with this. They offer a vault concierge service where they will do calls with you. They'll ship you the hardware wallets. They'll get you set up and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in that vault. You can get $50 off by using the code Levera. Unchained Capital offer some of the best technology in the space and they have all sorts of excellent products and services like their loans facility as well, which I spoke about in a recent episode 263 with Parker Lewis. So go and check that one out also. So if you're looking to upgrade or get started with a multi-signature vault or get a loan, go to unchained.com. So stacking our sats, we want to make sure that we can recover our coins if something happens. This is why we look at metal backup seed products like the Cypher Wheel. So cyphersafe.io is the website for this, and the Cypher Wheel comes in a wheel shape. It's a steel product, and it has been designed to be fireproof and waterproof, rustproof, petproof, so your pets won't eat that piece of paper, and it is also tamper-evident. So don't just trust in that piece of paper that you get with your hardware wallets. Use an actual metal backup product to make sure it is 
is safe. And in this way, you can make sure you or your loved ones can access the coins if something happens. Go to cyphersafe.io and use the code Lavera to get your cipher wheel. And finally, coinkite.com, the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. And the cold card has a new feature. It's called Seed XOR. You can split your BIP39 seed into multiple parts, two, three, or four seed phrases, and you can then have each of those on their own metal seed backup. And that way it can help us get around that challenge of how do we store clear text secrets. And so when you do it this way, each of those seeds works in and, in and of itself on its own right, but it also has uh, the combined aspect of it where you could be potentially storing the main stack of coins. So that's an interesting feature. Make sure you go and check them out. Go to coinkite.com and use the code Lavera to get a discount on your cold card. Back to the show. Right. And so speaking of firmware then, uh, in terms of running you know, brains, the firmware, does it matter which miner you are, which, you know, which manufacturer or brand that you're using, uh, or is it only for specific units? It would be awesome if we support all the machines or kinds of machines which are uh, running in uh, right now in the world. It's unfortunately not the case. We are pushing as hard as we can to support uh, various uh, types of miners. Currently, we do support Bitmain machines. Uh, a subset of Bitmain machines, mostly S17s, uh, S9s, historically, all different versions of this kind of hardware. Uh, these machines are much easier to uh, switch firmware uh, on them. It's They were created in times where uh, manufacturers were not so protective. The newer machines are more complicated to get on uh, with, the, with the firmware. Well, we do have uh, what's minor firmware running in our internal uh, internal lab. It's not publicly uh, released yet, but as I said, we we are trying to push it as as hard and as soon as possible. It is very promising on the what's minor side. Newer versions of uh, the newest versions of Bit, uh, Bitmain hardware uh, will follow pretty soon as well. Yeah, uh, it would be great if if we have support for everything, and it's definitely the intention uh, but it takes some time it is not always very straightforward to support new hardware but it's yeah sure and i think the other thing to point out is just the aspect of having open source firmware and i know that's also a big that's something you and the team are quite big on that aspect of it why is that important why should people care about having open source uh, firmware and other aspects of their mining stack yeah, you, if you buy a machine, you don't want to be a slave. It's super easy. Look at Wi-Fi routers. There is a huge problem with firmware and Wi-Fi routers. For example, from our perspective, whenever we buy such a machine, we flash our firmware there, which is much more secure than the typical offering because we care about the the, the machine and, and, and security of the machine. And with firmware and the miners it is a similar thing you you're buying a machine for doing some work but at the same time you want to have a full control of what the machine does or, or and not and there are historically some not very nice examples of uh, the firmware doing stuff you didn't know what it is uh, not always uh, good for you as a user like controlling from external uh, apis or not using all the power the machine can deliver to you because <laughs> 
reasons and so on and so on. Uh, so we deeply think that you should have full control over the hardware you're purchasing. It's similar to uh, you should have a control over your keys as a Bitcoiner. You can opt in to some, let's say, uh, wallet provider offerings if you decide so. But yeah, the, the, the whole thing that you have the control and you can decide what to do is it's paramount. And it's the same with firmware as well. And that there's a second layer to it you mentioned, and it is open source. It's an extension of the of the right to do whatever you want with the hardware, flashing any anything what you would uh, like to run on on the machine. For, for example, auditability for uh, large companies is a thing. Uh, like having completely unknown firmware running uh, in your data center connected to the internet and a network site without possibility to look into source code or talking with the vendor what's this this thing is is doing yeah it, it's a big topic so, but the the open source is even an extension of it where whenever it is possible to open source the code so that the user can tweak stuff audit stuff uh, by themselves or do changes and run their own version of the firmware it's a great thing in general obviously there is a, a tension between having all the code open and having some proprietary algorithms which you would like to uh, make some money on we we kind of struggle with this uh, two things internally as well because there needs to be some line but yeah that in in general being capable of doing with your machine whatever uh, you you're pleased with it, it's it's like no brainer for us and as far as we can go with right. yeah. providing the the basic versions as open source yeah it's yeah again something and to the aspect of having control over your own device it's probably useful for listeners to understand that this, <laughs> it's not <laughs> this is not just a totally theoretical thing there have been historically examples where people bought mining equipment and unbeknownst to them there were say remote kill switches or remote abilities to change things in that device uh, and essentially if you know the ecosystem was pushing and driving towards the idea of having an open source uh, ecosystem then those kinds of things are much harder to get away with right yeah but look look let's look at the brain source manager it is kind of external management tool so we have the capability of changing the stuff on the machines remotely it, it is part of the whole solution that you can from your browser manage the whole farm, change settings, do crazy stuff with the hardware remotely. But some there's a very big difference between doing it uh, in a way that user opts into this uh, feature set or doing it covertly. And if the user has the ability to say, no, I don't want this, I want to switch this off or switch to a different firmware or whatever, that's perfectly fine because then we can talk. It's an open offering uh, and the user is still the one with the control of what's going to happen or not. Uh, obviously, there is a trust for to the vendor. If, if you're running somebody else's uh, software, you'll always expecting them to not behave badly but the whole thing that you can choose is the critical 
critical piece of this uh, this equation. Yep, and uh, I think there's another benefit I've seen on your website. You mentioned uh, dynamic power scaling. Now, this is something that you would do on certain types of machines, right? So, so what is dynamic power scaling? Yeah, it's it's a very cool name for quite simple principle. It's a feature allowing the firmware to lower its power draw when the external conditions are changing. So one particular example is if the machine is overheating and the machine is unable to cool itself down by running the fans faster or some external temperature changes outside of uh, normal range, the machine uh, downscales or lowers this its power draw so that it can maintain uh, safe temperatures. You, you can do it in the other direction as well. Uh, we are still improving this feature because the, the holy grail would be being able to change these properties based on, for example, different electricity price when in, in environments where uh, the price is different in different parts of the day and stuff like that. Because then, then you can run, for example, in or economy mode in one part of the day and it give me everything what you can in different parts of the day. And it has different power draws and you have to manage it properly uh, during these times. So this cool sounding feature is basically tweaking with power draw of the machine automatically. Awesome. And so... Uh... That is, uh, but as I understand, that's only available on certain machines as well, right? So which machines is that available for when, when you're using uh, Brain's firmware? It is a good question, and I don't have answer from top oh, of my yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm not, not, not uh, doing this thing myself, uh, spending more development or management time with uh, the pool side of the things. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Um, so turning back to this whole idea of doing uh, soft forks and upgrades in Bitcoin, I think it's interesting because right now there's a few different things here. So one is it might not be clear that all the pools in the future will actually be identifiable, right? That there's a person you can <laughs> pick up and pick up the phone and call or email them. I mean, in the future, it might not actually be that case or maybe there might be so there might be distributed down a little bit more uh so then i wonder yeah but do you, do you think it, it, it is a good thing right or are you suggesting that uh not knowing the the person running the pool is is worse than knowing it so i'm, I'm not completely completely sure that knowing everybody uh as a pool operator or owner of the hash rate is a good thing in principle yeah so, so it's obviously good if you want to tweet that hey start to signal taproot and you have some handle to uh tweet to but from the other perspective i don't know i think some some kind of privacy can be a good thing even in this space yeah of course and i think it's just an interesting thing imagine you have a very big farm and you're running your own operation you're running your your solo mining and there is two two percent of hash rate who which is unidentifiable for external world it's your hash rate you have the same power over the the blocks related to your hashing power obviously as everybody else but you don't have to say uh to everybody hey i have this farm and it's perfectly fine so yeah the, the premise that we should know who runs the pool maybe maybe not yeah so i'm and i'm not saying uh that it has to be that way i'm just saying 
from purely from the perspective of trying to coordinate an upgrade in the future, that may not be possible, right? And so that's just something we have to yeah. we have to think about and accept that 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 may be the reality going forward. We don't know that for now for sure, um, but it could. Maybe the other argument would be something like maybe there is a tendency towards using you know big pools because you otherwise or just using a pool rather than solo mine. So I guess just for listeners who are unfamiliar, if you are solo mining, it means you've got, you know, you've generally, you've got a small percentage of the overall network's hash power, obviously, and you might experience some variability in your income that you're getting from Bitcoin mining, because how often are you going to find a block when you're some tiny fraction? So you kind of have to use pools unless you've got enough hash power, right? Uh, yeah, it's perfectly correct. But we, we can see tendencies, as you as you mentioned, uh, pools are getting bigger. This somewhat stopped uh, in the last years, but we, we can point to few very large pools, and it is in most cases beneficial for users to join pool especially if you're not investing hundreds of millions of dollars to your own hardware and data center and all this stuff and, and then you can probably mine yourself uh, as a solo mine but it's not a typical use case uh, let's face it uh, so for normal users it's very beneficial to uh, join some pool and f- from for example the top root perspective fortune Fortunately, we do know uh, who the operators of these pools are, or most of the pools, so we can uh, push them on Twitter. But yeah, um, it is not necessarily the case. But unfortunately, I think it's going to go into this direction of pools being more like an exchanges in the Bitcoin space where they started as uh, garage projects, uh, but uh, as time progresses, they are more KYC, uh, yeah, full of lawyers companies, let's <laughs> say. And unfortunately, pools are going into this direction as well, which has obviously some good properties. Being a proper partner to these publicly traded minor companies, it has its value. But at the same time, you know, running a pool as a as a garage project is fun as well, and it, it, there is some hist- some spirit in it. <laughs> so yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. And I think yeah, I agree with you that it's uh, there's uh, benefits and costs there, right? So on one side, it's easier to coordinate an upgrade, but on the other hand, having identifiable pool, you know, people who are running the pool, you know, maybe that makes it a little bit you know, less able for people to who want to be who want to have like a private or kind of more sovereign, if you will. So I guess that's that's something to think about there. Yeah, you can force force if you know who runs the pool, you can do a lot of stuff to influence their decision. Exactly. Uh, so not knowing it can be beneficial because the the person can decide more on a clear economical incentive level what is right, and it, it would typically be aligned with Bitcoin in general more than uh, if you open this influence from external world because if, if if the person is anonymous then and makes bitcoins assumption would be hey whatever is good for bitcoin this person will probably uh want to go in in, in this direction but once it's a publicly known person you know there can be reasons or some ju- just th- this aspect is interesting as well yeah yeah and the other point as well is when okay so right now we're looking at blocks and saying oh see this is 
as an example, slush pool and some other block is some other pool. But that part is not actually verifiable, right? Like it's just they are all, all like all the pools are just stamping it with their name. But, you know, what if someone stamps it with somebody else's name or just doesn't stamp it at all? Like that's also another thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting thing because as as you mentioned, uh, it's just few bytes in, in the block uh, and software detecting or showing which pool has which uh, percentage of network just looks into the blocks and tries to pattern match uh, some uh, some bytes or string by doing it this thing which is which uh, pool created this block but you can do better analysis than this you can obviously look at the the stuff just from this perspective but it's not enough you, you can go uh, and see transactions you can double check hash rate against uh, the produced blocks. Once you look at uh, the whole block content, you can draw better, better conclusions. Once you start to blockchain analysis uh, on payouts, you can link uh, link the the address addresses towards which the block is mined, and you can link it from there as well, and so on and so on. So. There is a way how to distinguish pools if you spend enough time with the problem. Uh, but the typical markers are working just fine. Right. And I think the other point, as you said, that uh, over time, as some of the pools have gotten larger, they have a presence, right? They might have a, a social media profile or a website because they want to do marketing because they want to get new miners pointing their hash power there so i guess that's a business yeah that, i mean you've got to run a business and so as these businesses get larger well then they might start having more of a an online or a you know fingerprint or a way of uh, trying to um, draw people in because as a customer let's say if you're a miner out there thinking which pool do you choose well you might want to choose one that has you know big enough hash power or whatever whatever features it's offering um so i guess that that is also kind of a tendency pushing the other way um so maybe it will still be identified viable pools going into the future yeah i think it's going to be exactly as you're saying it it takes only one mistake when when you try to be anonymous on the network and you make one mistake of leaking the information uh publicly through some transaction being made for example from your coins uh then you can go back and look at the history on the blockchain and probably identify a lot of stuff exposed so it i think it's very difficult to to be completely uh completely anonymous as a bigger player in the mining space but the principle is still quite nice yeah i see uh, not everybody is doing blockchain analysis uh yeah of course over the weekends so <laughs> Yeah, so just for listeners who are unfamiliar there, what that is, it's referring to how when you, you know, let's say the way the Bitcoins are paid out from the pool to the miner, uh, if somebody's able to look at uh, essentially like chain surveillance and use either those tools or open source tools like OXT.me or so on, uh, where they can try to trace it back and see, oh, it came from this wallet. Or I guess in the other case, also even just clues from the block itself uh, that give off which pool it came from, right? Which pool created that template, right? Yeah. Uh, we started the discussion with Taproot. Taproot is, there is a uh, analogy with uh, with Taproot as well. 
Taproot basically masks differences between different kind of transactions. So everything looks the same. So from chain analysis perspective, it is great for the users because there is less meat uh, to look at if you're trying to uh, infer some information from uh, the transactions because everything looks the same. It's much more complicated. And similar thing is for blocks as well. You can see slight differences in the blocks produced by different pools because not all the pools are or not not all pool software works exactly the same so you can you can see a patterns in the data so you can distinguish different source of uh, bitcoin blocks obviously you could try to hide it as a pool but if you don't do it intentionally you, you can see and the data are pretty clear it's a nice exercise for uh, any data analyst yeah cool so it, and so i guess just broadly in the ecosystem around supporting up to the ecosystem. Now, if we look back at 2017 and all the drama around activating SegWit, which was seen as a very much an enabling technology that would then allow, I mean, there's a range of things, but it was seen to be enabling Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. And so there was a bit of a debate back then about, oh, would miners support this? Because maybe if everything's happening on Lightning, well, then is that going to take away uh, on-chain demand in terms of transactions? And so are miners going to miss out on the transaction fee revenue from that? Um, but I think the counter argument would be something like, no, but it's bullish overall because it's making the overall ecosystem more valuable. And therefore, even if there's less um, at, at the start, it's kind of like a short term pain for long term gain situation where even all the channel opens and closes and all of that stuff is contributing to the overall ecosystem. So I'm just wondering if you have any insights to share there, I guess, from your side as well. And from when you talk to miners, um, whether that is playing on their mind at all about any potential future upgrades, or it's, it's sort of seen like if it's building the overall system ecosystem, then it's a good thing and we want it. I think most of the non-crazy miners, and there can be some crazy ones, understand it the same way. Uh, and it is anything what can push Bitcoin further as a good thing all the small uh, gains you can you can probably gain if for example taproot is not activated then transactions can be slightly larger so that you can try to think okay it's gonna cost more more on fees it is childish game the the big thing is understood by miners if if the bitcoin as a whole thing is stronger and better it has much bigger influence on on them as well most of the miners i know are bullish in bitcoin in general they have to be and they're hodling uh, so whatever helps the ecosystem in terms of price or stability or whatever it is good for them as well in general so yeah, b besides some political games, as we saw it a few years ago, and I'm not downplaying that there were some serious discussions in that in the time, I'm not saying it was silly uh, in any way, but, but in general, I think miners are for stronger and better Bitcoin because that it, it will give them like future revenues, uh, even from the economical perspective. It's good for, for any hodler to, uh, to have strong uh, Bitcoin with as much features as possible in a secure way. I think the, the alignment is, is quite, quite nice on top route, especially. Yeah. And so for any, I guess, listeners out there who want to uh, encourage you know, taproot adoption or signaling and, and then later adoption, do you have any messages for them or what can they be doing if they want to try and um, you know, get, uh, get this over the line? 
uh, right now it's just about signaling. So if anybody can has any influence over directly miners or pools, if you have a friend in China running a pool, give him a call. <laughs> <laughs> it's not not necessarily the thing what everybody would do, but if yeah, if if you know any miner, pursue the the, the signaling thing. It it is very easy to switch pool if you can choose. There is a lot of signaling pools already out there. And uh, any influence, uh, even in social media, the, the public understanding or public uh, mood uh, can can make a difference as well. Uh, the whole game with the first signaled block uh, was just this. It has not direct influence on anybody, but if the discussion is present, then maybe the miners or pools will be a bit faster and we will make it into activating Taproot in time. Excellent. It will be awesome. If, if it's in one month done and no, no drama, I would be super happy. It's easier to move to some other improvements or getting the, the space better than trying to play with bits. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, Pavel, thank you for joining me today. Uh, for listeners who want to find you and find Brains or Slushpool online, where can they find you? Oh, I'm a very public person. Uh, you just type uh, Slushpool or Brains into Google and it's going to be a lot of links there. Brains.com is a good starting point to eyes and you, you can get everything what, what can be interesting from our offerings or information uh, available from there. So Excellent. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> Thanks for our invitation. It was a pleasure. I hope you found the episode educational and you learned something about uh, Bitcoin mining and how Bitcoin mining pools operate, as well as obviously Taproot and signaling for Taproot. Get the show notes at stefanlibera.com slash 275. Make sure you subscribe in your podcatcher applications and share it with your friends so new people can find out some good Bitcoin information. That's it from me. Thanks, and I will see you in the Citadels.